Well, good evening. Very good to be with you uh, this evening. I have to correct Roger on uh, one thing. There have been more than six or seven GCAB, GCBA retreats uh, because this is my second one. My first one was in 2015. So that would be, I think that adds up to eight. Yeah. So uh, I'll say more tomorrow. Again, I have been told to uh, save you know, my, my introductory remarks for tomorrow when there are more of you. Uh, so I will do that, but let me just say it is a great privilege to be with this church. Very special church for me. It's a very special church. My wife, uh, I think my two favorite things about visiting Grace Bay Area are, number one, uh, seeing old friends, people like obviously Roger and Jenny, uh, Dennis and Carol, so many others. And my second favorite thing is seeing a bunch of people that I've never seen before, because that means that this church that I love very dearly has been growing. So Praise the Lord, and uh, it's just great to be with you guys this evening. Uh, Again, I'll speak more about that tomorrow. I invite you to open up your Bibles with me to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. And I'm aware that a few weeks ago, a guest preacher came to Grace Church of the Bay Area and stole all of my thunder. I was a little bit disappointed, so I was hoping and praying that he would butcher the text. And unfortunately, he did a great job with it. But I hope there won't be too much overlap, Uh, but I do want to cover Daniel chapter 1 as we kind of introduce this series on remaining faithful in an unfaithful world. Uh, So we're going to cover the whole of Daniel chapter 1. And let me say up front that the book of Daniel is a book for our time. Uh, This is an ancient book. It's a very old book. It's it's Old Testament. Uh, So much of the customs in it and the cultural milieu is so different. It's very distant from us. And yet this is very much a book for our time because this is a book written to people who are living in a world in which home was not their home. And that is very much the world that we live in today. Uh, The term that the Bible uses for that is exile. And uh, not many years ago, there was a very dense academic study done on the experience of exiles. And I looked into this study a little bit because I found it interesting. The reason such a, an intense study was done is because the experience of exile, and I'm talking about literal exile in this world, to be sent to a country or to live in a country that's not your home, that's a shaping experience. That's a different kind of experience. And you could live in the same geographical space as someone, and yet you have very little in common because that is a shaping experience. And uh, a quote or a line from this article that stood out to me, I want to read it for you. It says, exile appears between two impossibilities. I like the way it states that. Exile appears between two impossibilities. Impossibility of being our homeland and the impossibility to find a proper placement for it. This leads to a situation of being suspended. To be in exile is to be in an unsteady betweenness. As you live out your Christian life, do you feel that you are in a state of that unsteady betweenness? Do you ever feel as a Christian in this world that you are caught in between two impossibilities? Uh, Do you ever feel like you are suspended? If you do, that's a good thing because the Bible speaks to this. That's, it's for good reason that you feel that you are caught in between two worlds. Uh, the book of First Peter is a book that was written to Christians very much in that context. It begins like this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect 
exiles. And as you read the book of First Peter, you start to, to realize that when Peter uses that term exile, and he'll use it again later in the book, but he's not so much referring to a political kind of situation. Uh, he doesn't call them exiles because of their status in Rome. Rather, that has everything to do with being a Christian. And Peter would tell us that from the minute you become a Christian, you are caught in that unsteady state of betweenness. From the minute you become a Christian, no matter who the president is, no matter what country you live in, you become an exile. And you are living in a world in which home is not your home. And that's where the book of Daniel comes in. Uh, This book was written to the Jewish people when they were in a time of exile. And the question of the book of Daniel is how will they remain faithful in an unfaithful world? And Daniel was very much written to answer that question. This is a book that was written for application. It was written to cause us to do something, to change the way we live. So the question that we're going to be asking throughout this week, throughout this weekend, is how can we, as Christians, remain faithful in an unfaithful world? world. Uh, That's the question that followers of God were asking in the 6th century BC. That's the question that they were asking in Rome in the 1st century. And that's the question that we ask in Silicon Valley in the 21st century. How can we remain faithful in an unfaithful world? And as we unpack these texts throughout this weekend, I want to uh, apply these texts to at least three different groups of people. And I think these three categories represent everybody here. A group number one would be Christians who are a little bit worried. You're you're feeling that tension. You're feeling that betweenness. You understand that home is not your home in this fallen and sometimes hostile world. And you look at the future you see what your your kids are learning. You you see the, the world that your grandkids have inherited. You watch the news and you're just concerned. You're worried. I think that's many, many Christians. And I think if that's you today, the book of Daniel has something to say to you. Uh, The second category of Christians are those of you here who you get it. Uh, You understand it. You feel that betweenness every day. You go to work. You just want to be equipped. You want to be faithful, but you don't necessarily know how. And you want to be equipped from the word of God to be faithful in an unfaithful world. And if that's you, the book of Daniel has a message for you. The third category of Christians are those of you uh, who are Christians or maybe you're not Christians. Maybe you're exploring or maybe, maybe you think you're a Christian and you might not be. But it's those Christians who are here today and this language of exile doesn't actually make much sense to you. Because you you don't feel that tension. Or maybe you feel some of it, but you, you, you recognize that you don't feel that tension as much as you should. Home does kind of feel like your home. This world is a little bit comfortable. And if that's you today, I think the book of Daniel has a message for you, and I think the book of Daniel will challenge you a little bit. It'll challenge you in your faith, and it will challenge you to recognize the exile status that you have as you seek to be faithful in an unfaithful world. We're going to look at Daniel chapter 1 today. What does this chapter have for us? How will this chapter equip us to live out our faith in this world that God has called us in? Uh, Number one, trust in God's sovereignty. Uh, Read with me Daniel chapter 1 verses 1 to 7. 
In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels from the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. This is the very word of the living God. There are many dark hours in the Old Testament, but I think this one might be the darkest. And as we enter this journey in the book of Daniel, I want to set up some contest, uh, context. And what I want to do is situate us in the story of redemption. I want to situate us in the grand narrative that's happening here. Uh, in the early chapters of Genesis, since the early chapters of Genesis, Genesis chapter 11, the nation of Israel is quite literally the hope of this world. God has called this nation out. He's created this nation. He has redeemed them. He's saved them from slavery in Egypt. And he's made a promise that this nation would be the instrument that God would use to bless all the other nations. This nation is going to be God's people. He will be their God. This nation is the hope of the world. And God calls them out. God gives them a law, the law of Moses. He makes a covenant with them. The covenant goes like this. If you obey the law, you will be blessed. If you disobey the law, you will be cursed. And you could read that in, Genesis, in uh, Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy chapter 28. Those are long chapters and they're mostly curses. If you read Deuteronomy 28, it goes on and on and on with these curses that God will pour out on his people if they betray the covenant. And the culmination of those curses is the exile. And if you look at that Bible that you're holding in front of you, majority of it is telling the story of Israel failing to keep up their end of the deal. God's people betray the covenant, they receive the curses, and they culminate with the exile. And that brings us to Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. God has made good on his promise the great city of Jerusalem has fallen. And this is actually phase two of the fall of Israel. The northern kingdom has already fallen. Now the southern kingdom joins them. And Daniel records this history through a theological lens. He's concerned for the theology of what's happening. And that's why he describes this. And he talks about these vessels from the house of God. We'll come back to those tomorrow. But they change hands. They now reside in the treasury of Nebuchadnezzar's God. And the, the process of the takeover is initiated. 
And what Nebuchadnezzar realizes is something that many people have realized throughout the world, and that is if you want to change the world, you do it through the young people. So he instructs his servants to go out. He says, bring me these young Jewish people. We're probably talking about teenagers here. And Nebuchadnezzar wants the best of the best. These are people from important families. These are people who are wise and knowledgeable and good looking. And they're, they're well educated. And he wants to bring them into Babylon to begin the process of re-education. And the mission is very simple. We're going to take these people. These are the influencers. We are going to assault them with our our Babylonian propaganda, and then we are going to send them back to their people, and they're going to infect the Israelites, and we're going to have some Babylonian citizens, some good Babylonian citizens on our hands. Among these young people are Daniel, and then three men that you probably know as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The fact that you probably know them by those names indicates that Nebuchadnezzar's plan worked a little bit, because we, we know them by their Babylonian names, but the plan worked. How are these men going to remain faithful in an unfaithful world? Uh, The first clue is found in our text, and it's found in the way Daniel records this tragedy. And you see it in verse 2. In verse 2, you'll see a little phrase, and it's the most important phrase of the chapter. Because that little phrase actually introduces us to the most important theme in the book. And the phrase is this, the Lord gave. The Lord gave, or God gave. Verse 2, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Those are only a few words. But what they remind us is something very, very important. Is that God is in complete control of history. That is the theme of the book. And you'll probably see that theme come up in all of these sermons. How did Israel end up in exile in Babylon? There are a few different ways that you could answer that question. You could give a, a geopolitical answer to that question. You could talk about all the different wars that were happening and different kings and things like that. That would be a very true answer, but that's not the answer that Daniel is concerned about. Because again, Daniel is attempting to give you a theological explanation of what is happening. And Daniel would say, how did Israel end up in exile? Because God ordained that they would be in exile. How can we remain faithful in an unfaithful world? Step one is to recognize that even in this world, God is in complete control. And I'm convinced that that is a truth that Christians can't be reminded of too much. And I'm convinced of that for at least two reasons. First of all, because we as Christians need to understand that this is just how big our God is. We worship a big God. We worship a God who runs this universe. We worship a God who writes history. Is that the God that you pray to? Is that the God that you come to Grace Church of the Bay Area to worship? Is your God that big that he doesn't just maneuver through history, but he writes history? That is the God of the Bible, and you need that truth because you need a big God to sustain you in an unfaithful world. 
And the second reason that we as Christians can't be reminded too much of the Lord's sovereignty is because you need that truth to sustain you through trials. We as Christians, I think we're pretty good at attributing the pleasant things in life to God, right? When you get that parking space, you praise the Lord. When things go your way, you praise the Lord. The pleasant things in life, we're good at attributing that to God. We give thanks to God. In fact, I've noticed that even non-Christians at times can be pretty good at that. But what about the bad things in your life? What about the trials in your life? What about the hardships? What about tribulation? What about suffering? Are you able in those times to say, the Lord did this? Are you able in those times to affirm that God continues to write history and God continues to be in complete control Because when those times come, when the suffering comes, and when the trials come, and in a fallen world, and in a hostile kind of world, those times come often, are you able to say in those times that even this is in the Lord's hands, and even this came from the Lord? When those times come, you need a God who is big enough to be in charge. You need a God who is actually in charge of the world, a God who is stronger than sin, a God who is stronger than trials. You need a God who is actually in control. And that's what Daniel reminds us with those very, very important words the Lord gave. If you've been a Christian for a while, you have encountered Christians with all kinds of stories, and you have encountered Christians who have faced great suffering. And I can tell you from from experience of of knowing these Christians, that if in your life, uh, you can come to that point where even in the hard times, you can say, the Lord did that. Your spiritual life will soar to new heights. You'll find peace that you never knew was possible because you will have a God who is big enough to control the whole world and not just the pleasant parts of your life. How do we remain faithful in an unfaithful world? Number one is to recognize the Lord's sovereignty, to understand that the Lord is sovereign. Number two, resolve to be faithful. Uh, Read with me verses 8 to 16. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. For he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my Lord, the king who assigned your food, your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink 
and gave them vegetables. Resolve to be faithful. Uh, Verse 8 is kind of an interesting verse. At first glance, it makes a lot of sense until you start to think about it a little bit. What was wrong with the food? Daniel and his guys refused the food. What was wrong with it? You could say, well, it was uh, not, you know, it didn't match the dietary restrictions of the law of Moses. And that would make sense for the meats. But then you have to, to realize not everything was restricted in the law of Moses. Uh, some of the meat certainly would have been okay. The, the law says nothing about wine. So that can't really be it. Uh, you could say it was food offered to idols. But if that was the case, that would have included the vegetables too. So that doesn't really make sense. Why did these guys refuse the food? All we can say, all we can know is that for them, this was a matter of conviction. This was a time when they felt the need for resolve. So Daniel has this plan. He asks the chief of the eunuchs for permission to eat only vegetables. And the chief basically refuses their request, but it says God gave Daniel favor. There's those words again. He gave Daniel favor in the sight of the chief eunuchs. He says no to Daniel, but then Daniel goes to the next guy and they cut a deal. And the deal is this. For 10 days, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are going to eat nothing but vegetables. They're going to drink nothing but water. At the end of the 10 days, they will come and evaluate. And whoever's stronger basically wins the contest. If Daniel and his friends are stronger, they will get to vegetables and drink water. What a reward for winning a contest, right? But in this story, in this little episode, we see a kind of resolve that is exemplary. And it's a kind of resolve that we as Christians in our context can learn from. I want to show you a few things. First of all, we see that their resolve is bold. You know, I've read this text many times before, and I think I always read this text, and I kind of assumed that this little contest was between Daniel and the Babylonians, right? The bad guys in the story. Daniel and his, his three Hebrew friends are doing their thing, and the Babylonians are eating all the meat, but that's not what's happening here. Because remember, Nebuchadnezzar is doing this brainwashing program. He's brought all these Jewish people, all of these Hebrews, God's people, he's brought them in. Daniel and his three friends take a stand, and the rest of the Jewish boys who have been brought in do not. So among God's people, we have four faithful ones, four who have resolved to obey God. And what a picture of boldness that is. Is that the kind of boldness that you have? Do you have the kind of boldness that is willing to remain faithful even when the people around you who should be faithful are compromising. When you're swimming in a sea of compromise, you have the boldness to stand alone. That's what we see from these men. This, this is the kind of boldness that comes only when you fear God more than you fear men. So their resolve was bold. Secondly, their resolve was winsome. And that's such an important point for us to note. There is a kind of Christian out there, and you might have encountered this Christian. Maybe you are this Christian. They reside often in the land of the internet, but it's a kind of Christian that I say has the spiritual gift of being repulsive. Have you met these Christians? There's a kind of Christian out there in a hostile kind of world who, who thinks it's always their place to argue and to be combative and to be off-putting. 
And that's never the kind of resolve that the Bible calls us to. And I think a great example of this is in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. It says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That's the kind of resolve that we see in Daniel chapter 1. These guys are, are winsome. They're strategic. They conduct themselves with honor. And we'll continue to see that throughout the book of Daniel. These men are honorable men. So their resolve was winsome. But third, their resolve was dependent. And what I mean by that is that these were very obviously, uh, very clearly men of faith. These were men of faith. And again, we'll explore this theme more tomorrow morning. But it's important to note that these guys were not nutritionists, but they understood this. If you're trying to build muscle, meat is better than vegetables, right? They probably didn't know the word protein, but they understood that meat was better than carrots if you're trying to win a contest to see who will become strongest. So let me make an important theological point here, a practical point. Uh, The book of Daniel has nothing to say about your diet. Let's get that out of the way. This has nothing to do with what you eat for dinner. This has everything to do with being faithful to God. What you have here is an act of faith. It's not that the vegetables are better than meat. What happened here is a miracle. These men understood that vegetables are not good for building muscle, but the Lord worked and these men won the contest. They were stronger than everyone else. They resolved to stay faithful. They refused to compromise And the Lord blessed them for it. This is the kind of resolve that will be required to remain faithful in an unfaithful world. Uh, Roger mentioned this a little bit earlier, but I oversee junior high ministry at Hillside. Junior hires are a strange breed. We have a high school teacher at our church who uh, I was talking to him about junior high ministry one time. And he says, oh, junior hires. I call them pre-humans. That was very mean. Uh, I do not agree with that, but I was, I was talking with one of our junior hires at one point, and he was telling me about his soccer team that he was on. He was an eighth grader, and he was just telling me about how the guys on his soccer team had noticed that he doesn't swear, and they started to give him a hard time for that, and basically what happened was he found himself in a position where he had to take a stand, and he had to resolve to remain faithful. Uh, within a few days of that, A guy from our church who is in his 50s, he had just stepped down from a really, really high position. He was an executive for an organization that all of you would know. And he's looking for a new job, and he came to talk to me and one of our other elders. And what he wanted to talk to us about was finding a new job that wouldn't demand that he compromise his convictions. And it just occurred to me that whether you are 13 years old or whether you're 55 years old, whether you're on a soccer team or whether you are an executive, to be a Christian in a world that is not our world, to be a Christian when home is not your home, is to to live out your life with resolve, to live out your life determined, determined not to compromise even when people around you are compromising It was the case in Daniel chapter 1. It's the case if you are in middle school, and it's the case if you are working, and all of you understand that. 
this is the kind of world that we live in as Christians. And I think we all understand that the the world is only becoming less comfortable for Christians. The world is only calling on us to compromise more. The need for resolve is only growing. The world that we are entering into is not going to be more friendly to Christians, but it will be less friendly to Christians. And what we need more than anything else is the kind of resolve that is strong, that is also winsome, but at the same time is unwavering. These are the kind of Christians who will remain faithful in an unfaithful world. Are you that kind of Christian? Are you ready to stand for Christ when everyone around you is compromising? Perhaps more importantly, does that thought frighten you a little bit? Does it frighten you just a little bit to think about the kind of resolve that will be demanded of you as a Christian in this world? If that frightens you a little bit, I'm a little bit glad. Because I think what you are are starting to understand, I think you're starting to become a little bit convinced that you do not have the strength to do that on your own. And if that's what you are coming to understand, that's a really good place to be. And that brings me to my third and final point, how to remain faithful in an unfaithful world. Third, rest in God's grace. Read verses 17 to the end of the chapter with me. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, the king had commanded that they should be brought in. Chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all them, none was found like Daniel Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and the enchanters that were in his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So Daniel and his friends excel in every way. They learned everything that Nebuchadnezzar intended for them to learn. They are stronger, they are wiser, they are healthier than all of the other Jewish young people. In fact, they're even wiser than the magicians and the enchanters of the king's court. They can't even compete with these guys. They win the contest. As a result, they find favor with the king. And Daniel occupies an important place in the government of Babylon until it says the first year of King Cyrus. Something you'll find about Daniel is it's a very understated book. That's about 70 years that that little phrase covers. This is a great book. And the example of Daniel is a great example. And the stories in this book, especially the first half of this book, are some of the most common stories that Christian young people learn. Uh, If you grew up in the church, you know these stories well. Again, you, you know that story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which we'll talk about tomorrow morning. I grew up in Sunday school in the 1990s and the flannel graphs, you know, they love to tell this story. If you had those little adventure Bibles, it's all illustrated and they love this story. We love this story and it's a great story, but it's often not taught very well. 
the story is often not taught very well because it's usually taught in such a way that Daniel is the hero of the story. And Daniel is a hero. Don't get me wrong. Daniel is a hero as are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But I want to tell you that they're not the main heroes of the story. And what happens when you make Daniel the hero of the story is the key application that you come away with is Daniel was a hero, so be like Daniel. And if Daniel is a hero, and if you succeed at being like Daniel, what happens is then you too will become a hero. And there are a couple problems with this approach to the book of Daniel. Uh, The first problem is that I think Daniel would be the first one to tell you that he's actually not the main hero of the story. In fact, if you think Daniel is perfectly righteous and the main hero of the story, read his prayer in chapter 9 and watch him refuse to say you and they as he prays this prayer of repentance. He will only use first person pronouns. He says, we, we, we have sinned against you. And I think Daniel does that to tell us emphatically that he is not the hero that we should be celebrating. I think Daniel will be the first one to say he's not the hero of the story. And I think the second problem with that interpretation is that it's just a little bit out of step with the whole design of Christianity. Because Christianity has a very uniquely humbling quality to it, doesn't it? Christianity is not a good religion for people who want to be heroes. Christianity is a great religion for people who understand that ultimately they can't be. So who is the hero of the book of Daniel? The hero of this book is God. And we find that insight embedded into these two load-bearing words God gave. Verse 9, God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Verse 17, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Without those last two God gaves, this is a very short book. In fact, without those God gaves, the Bible, a very short book. And if you're going to make it through your time in exile, if you are going to remain faithful in an unfaithful world, then your story is going to feature those words God gave. And in the final tally, you won't be a hero, but that's okay. Because every successful Christian story is one hero and that hero is God. If you remain faithful, the hero of that story will be God. That story will be mostly about God. So what do we do with that? How do we apply these truths? Honestly, there's not a whole lot we can do because that's the nature of God's grace. And I want to lay that before you as we begin this series, because the primary application is going to come back to this first one. How do you remain faithful? You can't, apart from a God who graciously, graciously grants favor. These stories will be stories of God's grace. How do we apply this? We pray for God's grace. We 
rejoice in God's grace and we rest in God's grace. Pray with me. Our Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you, Father, that you can equip us. You do equip us and you will equip us to remain faithful in an unfaithful world. Lord, I pray that we would never be tempted to make ourselves the hero of those stories. I pray for Grace Church of the Bay Area, that this church would be filled with great stories of faithfulness. But I pray that all of those stories would point to you. Father, may they point to you and your grace. You are a gracious God. May we trust that. May we celebrate that. And may we rest in that. Father, may you bless the rest of this retreat. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.